0: This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. Hi, everyone. So this, this paper emerges from a from a larger project, which is um, an intimate biography of a young man who's also a forced migrant. And I've spoken about him before um, in the last 18 months twice. So some of you will be familiar with his story. Apologies for telling it again. It's from a different angle this time, and I promise never to tell the story again after this at Oxford. (laughs) Um, So it's a young man called Asad Abdullah. Um, and I met him in September 2010 when he was living in a shack settlement outside Cape Town. And <clears throat> we met, I mean, oddly enough, in my car, where we can go, go into why later, about three times a week over the course of a year, um, where, where I took down his life story in, in as much detail as I could. Um, <clears throat> and we also went around the Somali settlements of Cape Town, and he introduced me to many people there. And then I spent another few months on my own tracing his journey. He lived a very itinerant childhood, um, primarily in um, Nairobi, Addis Ababa, and Diridawa, among other places. And I went there and tried to find what traces of him were left and tried to reconstruct something of the context in which he made important life decisions. Um, And and my, my preoccupation was... The series of trajectory-altering decisions that he's made during the course of his life, you know, why he made them, <coughs> the role of inheritance of situation, the the content of his imagination. I was particularly interested in his propensity for taking risks and why, um, whether he had ends in life and, and what they might be and how they changed. These were <coughs> sorts of questions I was interested in, and <coughs> I mean among the many decisions he took or has taken during the course of his life have been how to align himself politically. Uh, he's moved through a great many environments, a great many political worlds. And in each one, the question of what sort of political identity to adopt was not set in stone. <clears throat> how to position himself in relation to the politics of the Horn of Africa, um, in relation to refugee politics, the domestic politics of the various countries through which he moved. Several options were always open. And, and I was interested in why he took some options and not others. Um, Those were the sorts of questions that interested me. Um, Now, in looking at the series of political decisions that he's taken or the political positions he's adopted over the course of his adult life thus far, I found that I was unable to understand any of these choices, these political choices, without at the same time understanding his relation to a woman that he loved and this was, of course, the function of my methodology. I mean, I was writing an intimate history of a person, and I was thus interested in the woman he loved. But nonetheless, I can't imagine a credible account of his political decisions that ignores the women in his life. So, there are, of course, old methodological questions at stake here. Where do a person's values come from? Um, how are they connected to his or her interests? Um, and, and these are connected to a series of ontological questions about the relationship between a person's interior and, and the various social forces around him or her. And what follows doesn't tackle these questions head on, it's, it's really quite tentative and exploratory. So, to begin with the story of a person's life, or a particular way of telling the story, Assad was born in either 1983 or 84, he's not sure, in, in Mogadishu. Um, and believed until recently that he came from a stable and fairly prosperous family that had lived in Mogadishu for generations. Um, In January 1991, when war came to Mogadishu, it hit his family immediately and very hard. Um, His father disappeared. Um, His mother was was killed in their home in, in front of his eyes. And he fled into exile with an uncle and other family members. Now his, his recollections of his mother are are quite extraordinary um, and are clearly a very important feature of his trajectory. He has no memory of her face and no memory of her voice. Uh, when I push him, the only visual memory he has is of the back of her head. She apparently had two plaits running down her back and he remembers playing with her hair. But, but his memory of her is, is in a way much more powerful and ambient than that. It's way he expresses it is it's a feeling that she is inside him um, that she is with him um, and that in this place inside him she loves him and, and to put it in his words I saw her at such a young I last saw her at such a young age the way she taught me although I grew up an orphan I still feel that that um, what she was I am today I did not lose her despite her death I'm not sure that, st- that words can describe what I'm trying to tell you. I mean that by the time I was seven, she had already made me. Um, and, and we'll come back to this mother inside of him again several times. Now, <clears throat> it was a, it's a very, very eventful journey, and, and I need to rush through it and skip quite a lot of it. But he and his family were fleeing south towards the Kenyan border, uh, and at some point in that journey he was separated from his uncle and the rest of his family and was alone um, and in the town of Afmado um, <coughs> was surrounded at some point by various um, elder Okadeni men and told them his name and his lineage and his, his sub-clan and his father's and grandfather's nickname and, and, and through this naming was put in touch with the woman said to be close to him a woman called Yindi who was his father's sister's daughter, who he'd never met before. And they spent the next two or three years together. They ended up in one of the Dabab refugee camps um, in, in, in Kenya um, and, and lived there together for two years. At some point during this time, Yindi was was called by a family member to the United States um, and was told that she had a place there as a refugee. And what she said to Asad is that, you cannot come with me now. Um, but I promise you that you will come later. Uh, they didn't understand the bureaucracy of, of the scheme, they didn't understand how it worked, but they knew that there, was 12, there were 12 places for the family, um, and, and Yindi promised Assad that he would be among the 12. And in the meantime, she, on flying to the United States, left him in Nairobi, in Eastleigh. Eastli was filling up with, with mainly Darud refugees from southern Somalia. And he was placed in the care collectively of, of his Agudeni sub-clan, the, the Ali Yusuf, um, who collectively occupied a hotel um, in the middle of Eastleigh called the Hotel Talek, and, and he spent three years with them, you know, from the ages of about 9 to 12, which was a strange time because, on the one hand, he was collectively looked after. He always had food in his stomach and, and a roof over his head, But he never bonded with any particular adult. He never loved anybody, particularly among the adults. And and the way he talks about it, it was quite a strange, alienating time in which he was very rebellious and very difficult to manage and control. Um, Finally, after three years, there was a call, but a very strange call from Yindi about what to do next. She was told that it uh, it, it was time for the 12 to depart for America, but not directly. The other 11 were all waiting very far away in the town of Diridawe in Ethiopia, and Assad was to go there. And the, Ali Yusuf held a council and decided what to do. And they were in a dilemma, whether to let this boy go into the unknown or keep him in Nairobi. And they thought that the opportunity of, of a life in America was worth the risk, um, and he was shepherded uh, by a middle-aged woman. Uh, Ali Yusuf went to great expense to pay for her journey to go all the way to Dhirudhara where he was deposited on the other side and discovered there that he was most unwelcome that the family there had absolutely no intention of giving one of 12 valuable places to an Ali Yusuf boy Um, he was estranged from them from the start after a few months in Dhirudhara the family moved without warning with him deep into the Agudeni deserts into the town of of Werda. Um, they stayed there for a few months and one day Upton left leaving him there uh, all on his own 12 or 13 years old at, at the stage um, just to pause for a moment about how he tells the story thus far I mean what's very striking is that there are two very very important women in the story and the one is, is unconditionally an angel um, um, and, and is only love and the other is absolute evil and that's Yindi Um, he feels deeply betrayed by her, which is unfair. I think that as a woman she had no control over the situation and and probably the way the story unfolded has nothing to do with her character or her relation to Assad. But the story he tells is peopled by these two polar women, one a very good one and another a very bad one. And now alone in in Werder he he teamed up with two other um, boys on the streets and together they earned a living... Transporting water from the town's well to its restaurants, rolling these very large barrels along the ground. Um, and one of his clients, one of the restaurant's o- owners, was a young woman called Nazri, and she was being courted by a truck driver called uh, Ruda. Um, Assad was very, very interested in this, in this romance, in this courting, became close to Ruda, and Ruda eventually offered him a place on his truck in the lowest position of the truck, which is called the karish boy. Um, which is really the spare hand on the track. And he spent the next two and a half years crisscrossing not just the Ogaden but the whole of the Horn of Africa. Uh, and this, this track applied in his national trade. Um, he saw quite a lot of all the port cities in, in the north of the, of the Horn of Africa. Uh, he spent a lot of time in Djibouti um, and in Somaliland uh, and, and a fair amount of time in Addis. Uh, but, but these were quite good years for him, relatively speaking. He had a patron in Ruda, Um, a place on a track which made him quite important young people wanted to move around and tracks were important Um, now while he was telling me the story I was doing my own research um, on his life and came across something quite disturbing I extraordinarily hooked up with close family members of his in London who who he didn't know about uh, and through then started piecing something together of of his parents history and discovered that he was very, very wrong about his parents' history. He believed that they'd gone back since time immemorial to Mogadishu. They were an old Mogadishu family. And in fact, what I discovered is that his parents had grown up in the Ogaden, in in a province called Kurehe, which he was moving through all the time, Um, had married there. And had been refugees in the 1977-78 Oghdeni war between Somalia and Ethiopia. They were one of eight: 900,000 Somali Ethiopians who had a flea at that time, and arrived as refugees in Mogadishu, probably about three years before Assad's birth. Um, so in fact, he grew up in a household of refugees. Um, and, and from what I know of the experiences of Agadeni refugees in Mogadishu in the early 80s, it wasn't nice. They were outsiders. They were close to pariahs. They were very much refugees. And I had this dilemma about w- whether to tell Assad this story. I, I felt that I, I must. It, it, I mean, it had everything to do with him and very little to do with me, and it was my responsibility to tell him. But I was also troubled about why he didn't know, you know why he spent so much time in the province of his parents' birth. And not knowing it. it, it should have been quite simple to work out. Uh, he was absolutely obsessed with his lineage. He could, he could name the last 28 generations of his family on his father's side. And yet he didn't know where they came from. It, it, it must have been quite easy for him to find out. So I s- felt both trepidation in telling him and puzzlement in why he didn't know. Um, and I did tell him, and his response was to show a great deal of sadness, um, you know, He said the thought that his parents were refugees like him made him very, very sad. The thought that history goes around and around, that generations of sadness get repeated, is, is unpleasant. Um, and he really tormented himself for having been lost at the time, for, for not having known um, that family was was right there. Um, and in fact, he discovered a little later that his father was right there in Kurahe, had taken refuge there, and, and was, had now died. But there were moments where he must have been a couple of kilometers away from his father. Um, And if only he had known, had only put his history together, um, would have lived a very, very different life, would have been reunited with family, for for better or worse, uh, and that he didn't simply because of his his ignorance. Now, after telling him that in Cape Town, I came back here, and we didn't see one another for about six or seven months. And in that time, I'd look periodically at his Facebook page, which I guess is or isn't a form of spying. Um, but what was, began appearing on his Facebook page were links to Agudeni nationalist sites, very, very militant ones. Um, images of men carrying AK-47s with a desert background behind them. Um, uh, really various sites linked to an ongoing armed struggle, which has been going on since 1978 in Ogden. and And, and what seems to be appearing before me on my screen was Assad becoming a, a very militant Agudeni nationalist. Um, there were lots of new names started appearing as friends on his Facebook from uh, around the world. It, it seemed that a, an important um, transition in his political identity was afoot. Now, just to quickly say something about um, Agadeni nationalism. Um, I mean, it's probably the most bereft and, and saddest nationalism imaginable. You know, Somalis... <coughs> Somali speaking people settled in the Ogaden probably in around the early 16th century. Um, very, very famously in, in Ogadeni nationalist ideology, they were bitterly betrayed by the British in 1898, where a secret deal was done with the Ethiopians, handing over the Ogaden to Ethiopia. And they became, in their language, a Somali limb amputated, um, living under a um, foreign, foreign Christian empire. Um, you know, the standard Agadeni story goes that they were trade again in 77, 78 when the Soviets swapped sides and the Somalis lost the war. And they've been trade ever since by the Somalis who are now disowning them. So it's a it's a nationalism of eternal wandering. Um, it's a nationalism of eternally being locked out of of generations of exile and homelessness. Now... <clears throat> Gradually, these nationalist websites began to disappear from Assad's Facebook page. Um, And by the time I met him next, they were gone completely. Um, And I asked him about it. And he said that he'd flirted with the idea for a number of while, for about three months. But in the end, it felt uncomfortable. And and the reason it felt uncomfortable was that to become an Ogdeni nationalist and to embrace an Ogdeni heritage would be a betrayal of his mother. And, And Why? I mean, essentially he said that his mother is inside him and she would disappear if he became an Argentinian nationalist. That's the way that he put it. Um, he, his, the very core of his identity was to be grounded, was to be in a grounded history. Uh, and that was emblematized or embodied in, in a mother in his head who was aground, who was, who was firmly there, unalterable. Um, so I guess what he's saying <clears throat> in less flamboyant language is that adopting an Argentinian nationalist identity is not psychologically bearable that he needs a grounding, he needs a sense of continuity and he couldn't imagine this history as his own <clears throat> but it's very interesting that he expresses this um, in terms of his solidarity with a woman and his love for a woman inside him his mother, it's interesting that his groundedness his sense of himself and his politics um, is so inextricably attached to, to a relationship with probably the most important relationship with the woman that he has um, <clears throat> and it also struck me then that as a man very very concerned with lineage um, and, and who as I say recites generation after generation of family it, it really is a private lineage rather than a real empirical one um, uh, it, it, it is really I guess a projection of himself into the distant past and into the far future um, and, and that's another important theme about his political identity that I'll return to later um, but to carry on with the story, um, and his exact age at all of these points is hard to tell, but probably when he was about 16, he left the track and left Ruda. Um, and, and as he recounts it now, the reason is that among the many young people that the track was transporting through the Horn of Africa were students. Um, and he became... Particularly close to a group of five students in Deiradawa, and he envied them. He said he envied them their cleanliness. He was full of oil all the time and only got to wash every few days. But he envied them their education. Uh, He was passing, he was soon going to be an adult, and he couldn't read or write. He'd learned a little bit in the refugee camp, but not nearly enough. Um, And so, very suddenly, he told uh, Ruda that he was leaving and he went to live with these youths in Deiradawa. Um, <clears throat> found very quickly that he wasn't going to get into a school and within months left Deiridara and, and with a friend went to Addis just because he said he was a provincial boy and the city was big and, and that's, where, that's where you go when you're at a loss, you go to the biggest place you can find um, <clears throat> and very quickly started doing very well in, in Addis um, really as a broker, as a hustler mediating the relationship between new Somalis flooding into Addis and the city First, their relationship to taxi drivers. Then, their relationship to the people from whom they rented houses. Um, <clears throat> and finally, and most importantly, their relation to officials who were going to give them documents. Um, he ended up being a breadwinner in a house of four or five young men, doing much better than all of them, and then really discovered his power, his, his way of making himself through the world. And also, at this time, met, or at least in the way he tells it now, uh, a famously beautiful older woman, uh, a, a Somali woman um, who was Isaac and from Somaliland called Fusio, who's about seven years older than him, um, and who the young boys around him all seemed to have crushes on. Um, and it's extraordinary talking about these things. They're all very pious Muslim boys, but they all sat up together each night chewing cats and talking about women until they were blue in the face and couldn't sleep. Um, and <clears throat> the first time that she made eye contact with him and spoke to him it was to insult him Um, somebody said to her jokingly can you marry, would you marry him and she looked at him disparagingly and said he's a small boy Um, and he took deep, deep offence, I think in quite a a chilling way um, and decided that he was going to pursue her court her and marry her sleep with her once and then divorce her I mean he really felt deep anger You know, I said that the women in his life were divided into the very good and the very bad. This was the very bad. Um, And and I think it was a real moment of deep pathology and and darkness in him. Um, And to cut a long story short, he was successful. Uh, And I think that she had her own reasons, but I'm going to run out of time, so (laughs) I've got to cut some of the story. Um, And discovered very, very soon, in fact, in the first weeks of, of his marriage with her, that he was in love with her. And part of the reason was the experience of a of a virgin man having sex with a virgin woman who'd had a circumcision. There was a great deal of blood and pain that he said it put in, put in the mind of his mother. Um, and an evil woman became a good woman. Uh, that's part of the story at any rate. Fusia does sound like a truly extraordinary woman, very, very wise and, and interesting. Um, <clears throat> and they'd been together <clears throat> really just a few months when Assad put a... Th- $1,200 in his pockets and headed south to Johannesburg without the documents and not knowing how he'd get there. He'd been saving up to do this for a long time. Um, and he made a pact with Fusia. She said that if in, in six months you haven't called for me, I will consider myself divorced. And so the clock was ticking from the moment this very uncertain journey began. Now, why did he leave? I, I think it's quite complex. I mean, one is that he was told that there were fortunes to be made in South Africa, there were Somalis moving through Addis um, heading north. And the stories they told of South Africa were were of easy money to be made very quickly. But there was a second reason, which is that he believes, at least in retrospect, that he saw which way the political winds in Ethiopia were, were blowing. Um, this was now just a year before 2005, before the elections that, that were lost um, and, and soldiers going onto the streets and, and gunning people down. Uh, and he believes that he saw this coming. I mean, he believed that he had... You know his wily skills as a hustler, as a middleman, included knowing stuff that was going on, particularly among taxi drivers. Um, and he, be- he could believe that he began to read Ethiopian politics um, as a purely pragmatic skill, not as a moral commitment. And, and began to understand that any man in in um, uh, Bole the uh, Somali district of, of Addis, he was in danger. Uh, that there was a very very brutal, very bad state that could pick on people in the middle of the night and and, and they would disappear and there would be no accountability and and he was afraid. And there was a third reason, which is that among the many good stories he heard about South Africa is that it had a liberal asylum regime, it had the rule of law, it was a place where you can't be thrown in jail and never be heard of again, that there's accountability, that people with power are held to account. And this is important because it's, it's, it's the strongest normative political commitment he had expressed thus far. It was to an idea of human rights, of accountability of government, um, to a politics of hospitality. Uh, and I think that he was perhaps beginning to imagine himself as a person who'd never returned to the country of his citizenship and, and was becoming preoccupied for the first time with the national order of things and, and what it meant for the course of his life. Um, I won't go into his trip to South Africa, which was very eventful. Um, <clears throat> When he arrived in Johannesburg and and his first few hours there were probably the closest any moment in his life comes to an old structural functionalist version of what Somali clans are. He arrived in the home of an Ogdeni man he'd never met before. This man opened up an enormous ledger which had a tree of all the Ogdeni sub-clans in in South Africa and a cell phone number, mobile number next to each one. And with hours of arriving in Johannesburg, discovered an uncle, a very close relative living on the eastern seaboard of South Africa. Um, <clears throat> he had now not been in contact for many, many years with family. Um, <clears throat> took a Greyhound bus down to Port Elizabeth, where his uncle was, and, and was reunited. Um, <clears throat> and through his uncle, uh, very, very slowly got into business in, in South African townships as an as a informal trader. Um, <clears throat> I mean, no sooner had this happened, no sooner had he got a job as a, as a shop assistant than his uncle was, was murdered in his own shop in, in New Broughton Township in Port Elizabeth by robbers, um, which was a, a moment of terrible devastation of a finally founding a father figure and then losing him. Um, And he and a cousin, another Abdullah, got together what capital they had and went into business again. I mean, this time in a very small rural hamlet in the Eastern Cape of South Africa. I mean, again, starting a what's called a spaza shop in South Africa, a general trading store, which immediately started doing quite well. And that part of the South African story turned out to be right. Uh, He was told the locals weren't very good at business, and if you had a, uh, if you had good sense, you could start one and and beat the locals, and it was true. By now Fousia joined him with her own very, very dramatic trip to South Africa, and they had a child and she was pregnant with another. <clears throat> and at this point his cousin was murdered, and in the most insidious way, you know, a former employee who who they'd fired several months before came to the shop one morning and with two other men and stabbed his his cousin to death. And at that point they felt quite comfortable in this town. It was small, they knew everybody face to face, they knew most people's names. They began learning about the connections between, history, uh, between people and old family histories, and all this knowledge made them comfortable. But the moment this murder happened, the town very quietly and, and collectively turned against them. Um, the murderer was arrested. There was clear evidence. He was none the released a few weeks later. He came into the shop one day to buy cigarettes from Assad. Um, and, and that moment that happened, living in that town, became intolerable. But about what they do next, he and Fusir disagreed. Um, she said she's seen the writing of the wall and and there is no safe place in this country, South Africa, for a foreigner and she wanted to go back to Somaliland or at very least somewhere in the Horn of Africa Um, and he really, really didn't want to do that he wanted to stay in South Africa and his reasons again are very complicated and and I think there are a few of them and, and they vie with each other but one is that he was very concerned about being an Angadeni, living in Somaliland among Sak people, and at times wondered even whether, for his physical safety, whether he'd be safe in the circumstances. I mean, more subtly, he was worried about bringing up Angadeni children in Somaliland and wondering whether they could have a life there, a life of, of dignity, of full participation in public space, um, or, or whether they'd be a despised minority on the margins. Um, it, it didn't seem a good place to bring up Abdullah children. But thirdly, and, and really most difficultly and most difficult for him to talk about is that he felt that returning not just to Somaliland but to anywhere in the Horn of Africa would signal a defeat. Um, it would mean that life was not progressing. The way he puts it, I would die the way I was born and nothing would have happened in between. A, a real expression of emptiness. He wanted to move forward. He wanted to get somewhere else. And very, very sadly, They parted. Um, he saw her off at the airport in Johannesburg you know, with one child and another in her womb um, and to this day hasn't seen any of them again um, and he himself came up with a truly crazy plan um, for many thousands of dollars he bought several things and the one was an air ticket to Sao Paulo and the other was a South African passport full of old visas that looked like a real one um, And his plan was to get to Sao Paulo and to make his way across the Latin American continent into Mexico, across the border into the United States. And he'd been told through rumor that what would happen there is he'd be picked up and arrested and thrown in prison, Um, but that (coughs) the Somali cannot be deported back to Somalia from America because it's in a state of war. They'd check him out to see if he was a member of a terrorist organization and if not, they would simply release him and he'd eventually get a green card. And he believed that he'd probably spend a year or two in jail. And, and when that happened he said he would call for Fusia and the children and set himself up in America and make a life there um, it didn't work out, in fact the day before, he bought all of this and was at a safe house and, and the day before, the batch of Somalis before him were, were bussed at the airport and the whole scheme unraveled and he was kept in, in, in South Africa but I think that what's very difficult and uncomfortable about the story um, <clears throat> and which we eventually did manage to speak about, is that I I think that he really realized deep inside, even if he didn't always admit it to himself, that while his plan was to go to the United States and there raise a family with a wife and children, he couldn't know whether it would be this wife and these children. Um, And he knew that it probably wouldn't be. That that even if the scheme worked, by the time he set himself up in the United States, Futhier would probably be married to somebody else, his children would be somebody else's children, and the reality is that it would be another wife and other children and, and, and really, what that boiled down to was that his decision was quite selfish you know it was it was really about being the patriarch who would affect a revolution in his lineage, who would give his children a life that his parents could not imagine, um, and, and that was his main endeavor, but which particular empirical children they 'd be in a sense was less important than the fact that he would be the one delivering their future um, and, and I think that he realized that there was a great betrayal involved in this decision, and, and it left him with a great deal of guilt and shame. And the reason I think I know that, I mean, besides speaking to him, is, is in what happened next. I mean, again, he was exposed to terrible violence. He set up another business with another Somali partner in a township called Mabopani outside Pretoria, and they were robbed at gunpoint one afternoon. And again, he felt that he'd gotten to know his clientele quite well, and he was on first name terms with some of them, but when these armed robbers came in, they invited the clientele into the shop, and they came in and took what they wanted and left, and the next day came back to buy as if everything was the same. Um, and again, he felt this terrible chill of this, of the way things turn on a dime in these various spaces in urban South Africa, and left and went to Cape Town uh, because he's thought that Cape Town would be safer because the provincial government was run by white people who he thought would protect him from black people which the ANC government wouldn't and he set up yet another business in, in the township of Kailitsha and was unfortunate enough to be there in May 2008 which was a month famous for, for xenophobic violence across South Africa um, and he and his partner had to, had to flee um, yeah, about 100,000 people fled their homes over a two or three week period and 62 people died um, And he literally had to flee his shop, which was burnt to the ground by by people pursuing him. Um, I'm getting quite close to the end of the story. Um, I mean, a number of things happened in the camp. I mean, out of all the violence that he'd experienced, this violence really did begin to unravel him. And and the way he describes it now, he felt massive, massive remorse at this point about Fusia, and the way he expressed this was to say that she was extraordinarily wise, that she could read the future, that she knew that South Africa was not a place where you could stay, that, that you couldn't out-can it, that it was, it was, um, there was no place to hide. She was right. And he wondered where she got her wisdom and why he was so incredibly stupid. And with this remorse came regression. Um, he felt again a child you know, wandering through the Agaden, not knowing that he was home. You know, completely rootless. Um, uh, the way he put it, like a leaf that can just be um, swept this way or that by the wind, without control over himself. Um, <clears throat> and he kept speaking about his burnt-out shop um, and how it was really a symbol of his childhood, of being a child not wanted. You know, a child thrown this way and that by uh, Yindi's family, by uh, the Ali Yusuf of, of Nairobi. Um, and it was in feeling like this that he came across a woman and a boy in the refugee camp to which he'd fled in Cape Town after leaving his home in Kailiche. And he could tell immediately by looking at them that they weren't coping. Um, she was trying to sell tea at the side of the road and not being very successful. She was making you know, a few South African rands a day. Uh, the boy looked traumatized. He was about four years old. And he slowly befriended them and, and asked their story and found out what it was. And his interpretation was this. She was uh, Galgale, um, which is a part of, of the lowest caste in southern Somalia, the Saab, um, who are confined to certain professions, who are forced um, to become the clients of, of, of large clans in order to um, get a sort of quasi-citizenship in, in Somalia. And Galgale really have the worst contemporary history among all of the Saab clans. Um, they, in the late 1980s, really betrayed the, uh, the sub-client, which they'd been clients for many generations, um, by secretly, or some of their leaders secretly making a, a pact with Sayyid Barra, the, uh, the, the final president of Somalia. Um, and he was their new client, and they'd betrayed their old ones at the moment that he fled in 1991. Um, and the result is that they were hated by both sides They'd lost their clients on both sides They were detested on both sides um, And most of the documents I've read about them Have been in court papers In asylum applications in this country And in Canada and the United States And it seems that you know, by the early stages Of the Somali Civil War most of those who remained in Somalia were in protection in, in, in Kismayo in southern Somalia. Really, really destitute. And the reason this woman was not doing well in the clan in, in, in the um, refugee camp is that she was being shunned by everybody else. Um, and Assad felt an immense power of her story and, and felt that he couldn't turn away from her. Um, and in fact felt that in seeing her he saw his own childhood. Uh, the two became confused for him. The two became merged for him. Um, he felt that turning his back on her he would become Yindi he would become the various people of his childhood who turned away from him um, and he married her in the camp and in the face of, of really extreme Ogdeni disgust in the camp you know, he was told by Ogdeni uh, elders in the camp that it was unacceptable uh, they said to him you were dirtying your blood and in so doing you were dirtying our blood you were making us into filth um, it's not just your blood, it's ours you can't do this um, and became something of a pariah in the camp. Um, now, what was he doing here? I mean, it's obviously open to all sorts of interpretations, but I think perhaps one of the things he was doing was, was atoning for the decision he'd made about his previous family, about Fusia and, and the children. But, but perhaps more profoundly, I, I think that he was no longer coping, and, and, and the wounded, childish side who had been shunned had returned and couldn't be wished away. And, and perhaps what he was doing was depositing this child aside in another person and looking after it there. And in order to remain the adult as the one who is in control, the one who can walk away, the one who is not a child. Um, and so in a strange way, I think that this very, very brave act, a brave political act, was, was in a strange way an, an act of survival on his own part. And it very much shaped his political trajectory from now on. Um, <clears throat> the, the, the Somalis and, and other foreign nationals in the camps were declared internally displaced persons uh, which meant that when things subsided they would be reintegrated back into South Africa and he and about another 120 refugees simply refused they kept themselves hostage in a camp uh, the lights were turned off the water was cut um, and they stayed they were evicted and they simply moved to some public lavatories across the road they absolutely refused to leave and Assad became one of the two or three people who were its leaders. Um, uh, there's footage of him on South African TV at press conferences. For the first time in his life, he adopted a, a public political position. And he did so really as a parte familias, as the protector of vulnerable woman and child in, in, in a very old and conservative, patriarchal manner uh, you know, to defend this new wife and child who he'd taken on um, and who had meant so much to his own identity. Um, I mean, an extraordinary story. A, a UNHCR fact-finding team came out to look at these people who were keeping themselves hostage and took biographies of what had happened to each of them in South Africa and declared them refugees um, in South Africa very quietly, much to the embarrassment of the South African government. Um, and within three years, Assad had been repatriated to the United States, which was his dream, and is now living in Kansas City. Um, <laughs> Um, where I went to visit him for about a month, um, a year ago and <clears throat> what I found was very interesting um, I mean if Assad was deeply damaged by this violence I think that his wife Sadia is, is, is truly been rendered a, a dysfunctional person by her biography um, she's living in Kansas City, she can't drive, she can't work and, and most difficultly she can't love her children um, they, they now have two children. And and watching the two children's relation to their parents is quite disturbing. She can't make eye t- contact with them. When they cry, she leaves the room. The children are very, very close to Assad. And so he chose a damaged person and, and damaged she is. Asad, <clears throat> when I met him, was working on a $9 an hour job um, parking cars at a car rental at the airport. And, you know, he was earning a living and running his family, you know, taking the kids to school, taking them to the doctor, um, and, and caring for them emotionally, because he was the only parent available who could do that. And if he'd, if he'd run into Agudeni chauvinism in Cape Town, he, he ran into it much more extremely and brutally in the United States, where Agudeni people will really have nothing to do with him for, for marrying a, a Galgalia woman. Um, and when I met him, he was railing against the chauvinism. He was declaring the whole of Somali culture to be stupid, Um, and he'd have discussions with me about Somali narrative on Somali clan history and saying what do Somalis mean when they say that the Galgale were not there 28 generations ago if they're not there where were they they're they're Somali, they've never been anything else Um, speaking with great anger and and great militants his project now is to become an entrepreneur in America, just as he was in South Africa, to make money, and he's beginning to. He's, he's become a truck driver and is quite close to gathering enough capital to buy his own truck and start a business. I mean, he really is an extraordinarily wily and entrepreneurial person. And his plan is to go and find those two kids of his in Somaliland and bring them with him um, and gather a family about him in America. And what is he gathering? Well, he's gathering a lineage and, and he remains with a sense that he is going to profoundly alter that lineage's destiny. And, and he speaks of ten generations hence and what may become of them. You know, He said they, they won't know Somalia anymore. It'll be a foreign country. They'll be Americans. They'll hopefully be doctors or lawyers or IT specialists or whatever. Um, and he'll be long dead, but they'll be who they are because of him. Um, and, and, and he puts it that nakedly, that heroically. So he's building a Somali lineage, but it's really a lineage torn of any attachment to Somalia. I mean, Somalia now is just its prehistory, the way Assad sees the future. I mean, it's really just the material that that is Assad's project to change. That's all Somalia is now. And it's also Agudeni. It's got an Agudeni lineage, but again, it's, it's almost incidentally Agudeni because it's emptied of its Agudeni substance. And it certainly forgoes any identification with Agudeni history and, and renounces Agudeni pride. So these are the constituents of his political identity now, and it's an interesting and and complex political identity. On the one hand, it's very, very strongly shaped by a patriarchal heritage, and and is thus, albeit in indirect and complicated ways, is is an offspring of an old nomadic history. Um, Many of the patriarchal strains of that history are there in Assad now in Kansas City. But it's also a politics that's reduced heritage to the narrow confines of a lineage, it 's just about being Abdullah, it 's not about being Somali or Gi. it renounces nationalism of all sorts and it places enormous weight in the existential quest of, of the current extant patriarch in the lineage you know all this whole history centers on him and last but not least it 's also a classic and very very strong American immigrant ideology of self improvement um, that 's very much um, a central part of the parcel now. I think that, well well, certainly for me I can't trace the genealogy of this identity Without tracing his attachments to the string of women To his mother, to Yindi, to Fusia and to Sadia I mean they're all protagonists in the formation of his political identity And and his his identity is really undetachable from the various ways In which he's been a son, a a lover, a husband and a father Um, He is still young, he's about 30 years old And and his political identity is is most certainly not complete. Um, And I think that's important. I mean, history is strewn with cosmopolitans who became the angriest and most violent nationalists. I mean, in fact, so much extreme nationalism is led by people who have tried to infiltrate cosmopolitan environments but found themselves unrecognized there. It's a classic story of the history of nationalism. And so I think that a great deal depends on how America treats him. And if it shuns him or if he fails there, he may well in future retreat into Anagadeni or Somali nationalism. Um, there's the space for any human being to do a U-turn and <clears throat> become something they've hated. And similarly, his relation to women isn't yet complete. You know, Sadia is, is a burden because she is deeply incompetent in the world. Um, and, and whether he may still need that incompetence as a kind of proxy for his own weak self is unknown. That may change. Um, so that's what I wanted to share with you um, you know an entwined two narratives entwined one of a very intimate and, and personal history and the other of a political history um, and some sense of how I find it's impossible to uh, disentangle them thanks For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.